Baptist Church. If you're visiting with us today, uh, I want to give you a very, very warm welcome. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Kirk Matthews. I'm an elder here. And uh, every now and then I have the privilege that carries with it the terrifying responsibility of preaching. Um, if you're visiting with us today, we're in the summer sermon, sermon series called Confronting Christianity. And it's, uh, we're using Rebecca McLaughlin's book as a guide. We're not preaching the book, but we are using that guide to point us towards topics that are relevant and often vexing in our culture. And we've tackled some doozies, uh, including last week, Darren masterfully addressed how we should look at whether the Bible is homophobic or not. Um, we're tackling tough questions. Um, so to begin my sermon this morning, I want to read the lyrics of a popular song to you and see if you know it just by hearing the lyrics read. Um, if you do, please, please don't shout it out, but let's see how many of you know this song just by its lyrics. And to make it a, a little bit harder... I'm going to read the second verse, not the first one, which might give it away immediately. Uh, and I'll give you a hint. It was performed by a band called Bare Naked Ladies. So let, let's see if you know this song by its, by its second verse. Since the dawn of man is really not that long, every galaxy was formed in less than time it takes to sing this song. A fraction of a second and the elements were made. The bipeds stood up straight. The dinosaurs all met their fate. Tried to leap, but they were late, and they all died. The oceans and Pangea, see ya, wouldn't want to be, and want to be set in motion by the same Big Bang. It all started with the Big Bang. It's expanding ever outward, but one day it will pause and start to go the other way, collapsing ever inward. We won't be here. It won't be heard. Our best and brightest figure that it'll make an even bigger bang. Australopithecus would have really been sick of us, debating how we're here. They're catching deer, we're catching viruses. Religion or astronomy, in Carta Deuteronomy, it all started with the Big Bang. Music and mythology, Einstein and astrology, it all started with the Big Bang. Now, I don't know how many of you recognize that song. I thought I would get a few head nods. If you didn't, maybe it will become familiar to you if you hear the first verse. Would you play that, that clip for me, Mike? All right, now do you know it? So if you're among us today and you have spent time watching heathen television shows like this, uh, shows that no Christian should be watching, much less endorsing. Uh, no, I'm kidding, of course. That's a very, very funny show. And uh, it actually pokes fun at the scientific community, which we're going to be talking about today. Uh, but we do have at least one member of our pastoral staff here that really enjoyed that show. Uh, they will remain unnamed, but I thought I'd poke a little, little fun at that today. But there really is a lot in the lyrics to that song, and, and we're going to talk about it a little bit. Some of those lyrics, uh, you would probably say, oppose Scripture and what we see uh, Scripture's telling us about creation. Some of them actually line up a little bit with the uh, God's narrative about the, the creative story. Uh, but we'll do a little bit more on that later. So today, we're, we're confronting the question, hasn't science disproved Christianity? And it's a fair question. After all, isn't that the position of 
many teachers and professors in our public schools and in our major universities. Um, I, was, I didn't know that our prayer time was focused on Christian education today. God worked that out beautifully. I love that. Uh, thank you, Bill, for bringing that prayer. But all too often, when a scientific argument is advanced, Christians retreat. And we're going we're to talk about that a little bit today. Um, but today, rather than retreat, I'm, I'm really genuinely excited because when you examine true science in light of Scripture, and you examine Scripture in light of true science, you can find no conflict. So let's, let's dig into that. Um, I actually had to send in my text that I was going to use today uh, a little earlier than I was prepared to do that. Carla will laugh at that. Um, I said I would be uh, using the entire first chapter of Genesis and when I got into that preparation, I realized that was too much. I could not exposit that entire first chapter. So we're going to look at Genesis 1, 1. One single verse. You, if you have your Bibles or you need a Bible, there's one in the, in the, uh, in the aisles here. You, if you're without a Bible at your home, please feel free to take one of those with you. But this may be a verse that many of us could recite without looking at your Bible. Um. So let's, let's see if we can recite it together. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, say it with me. Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Pretty simple verse. But let's, let's pull it apart a little bit. Let's examine some of the original language. Uh, let's clarify what the word beginning means here in this, in this verse. Since there was never a time that God did not exist... This beginning is referencing the beginning of God's creative work. It's not trying to say that this is the beginning of God's existence. I think that's an important point. And that, that it's really illustrated if you compare this beginning with John chapter 1, verse 1. That says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's making the point that since there was never a time when God did not exist, and he has, he has existed as a trinity forever. The word beginning here in Genesis, again, refers to the, the beginning of God's work creating our universe. So, in the beginning, God. Just to be clear, the Hebrew word used in this original text is the word Elohim. Now, this is a plural version of one of the words the Hebrews used to reference God. Uh, and I'm, not, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. Uh, but I did do a little bit of study on this, and I learned that the plurality or the singularity of a noun in, he, in the original Hebrew language is influenced by the verb tense that it goes along beside it in the sentence structure. So in this case, in the original language, the verb used would indicate this use of Elohim would be viewed as singular. So we have a verb, a noun that's normally a plural noun, in this case presented as singular. So church family, in the first four words of the whole Bible, we hear that God in plural form, that, that, that we have one God in plural form. What does that sound like? Sounds like the Trinity, right? In the very first four words of the Bible, the triune God was responsible for the creative work that we see all around us. So let's look at the word created. The Hebrew word used here is used in its strictest sense of producing something out of nothing. 
The Hebrew word used here is in fact a relatively rare word and employed chiefly or entirely in connection with the activity of God. And finally, the words the heavens and the earth, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, can only mean the totality of all existing things. The idea of creating them out of nothing is contained in the very form of the sentence in the original Hebrew language. So, for our kind of baseline, setting the baseline for our conversation today, we're going to, there is uh, the discussion about the beginning of God's creative work. The triune God created out of nothing everything that exists in our universe. So that's, I'm going to set that as our baseline for the conversation today. Please keep that in mind as we go along. Now, let's turn our attention to science and see if we can see contradictions or conflicts between scriptures and the scripture and science. And I think it's really helpful to know precisely what we're talking about. Um, so I looked up the definition of science. Mike, can you put the definition of science up here? A noun, the systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation, experimentation, and the testing of theories against the evidence obtained. Now, let's, like we looked at the scripture, let's make sure we understand this. It's important to see the words observation, experimentation, and testing of theories against the evidence. What evidence is being referred to here? The evidence obtained from that observation and experimentation. And science is not without its rules um, on how this process, this scientific process, is supposed to work. There's something called the scientific method. And it has a definition, a method of procedure that has characterized natural science since the 17th century, consisting in systematic observation, measurement, and experiment, and the formulation, testing, and modification of hypotheses. Now, depending upon your source of studying the scientific method, uh, it's pretty universally accepted that the scientific method contains five or seven steps, something like that, that scientists are prescribed to follow as they go through their observations and measurements, etc. So, so far, we look at these two definitions and we look at the scripture, there's, there's nothing conflicting between these two definitions and anything in scripture. So what, what does the definition tell us that scientists can do? They can test hypotheses by experimentation and observation. They can observe our physical and natural world, and they can record those observations, and they do so in real and present time. I want you to think about that for a second. When a scientist conducts an observation, they can only observe what is in front of them in that moment. What is it that scientists cannot do? They cannot observe, test, or experiment on something that happened years and years ago without, unless there was someone from that era that had recorded their observations from that era. Are you, are you tracking with me? Scientists can only observe what's immediately in front of them. They cannot test what happened 10 years ago without someone from 10 years ago recording it. They cannot test what happened 100 years or 1,000 years or 5,000 years ago. They can only address what's in front of them. So we, it forced me to think we have to ask this question. Can those who believe science 
is not compatible with Christianity really, truly stand behind their own established and accepted scientific method. And I come to the conclusion they cannot. Their hypothesis that the, that the earth exploded from an infinitesimally small particle evolved for billions of years without a creator or without intelligent design simply cannot be tested. You cannot follow any scientific method to prove that. So there is a theory that is often put forth by people who reject the idea of an intelligent design of a creator called the theory of uniformity. Perhaps you've, you've heard it. There, there are probably scientists in this room. The theory of uniformity states that everything in our universe that is changing, that is ongoing, including the rate at which the stars continue to expand farther and farther into our universe, or the rate at which mountains are eroding, or the rate at which rivers carve their way through different paths in our world, all that change, this theory of uniformity states, always will and always has been moving at the same rate that can be observed today. So what they do is the theory of uniformity takes the rate that we can observe today of change in our natural and physical world. And they extrapolate that rate of change backward into time to arrive at their their theory on how the earth began and and the age of the earth. The most current popular belief in that community is that the earth is 13.8 billion years years old. And by the way, the theory of uniformity does not account for um, significant uh, events that could have altered that. For example, significant catastrophic events like maybe a worldwide flood. It might have changed the rate of change on the surface of our earth. But nonetheless, this is the theory of uniformity. And by the way, uh, I don't know if you've heard, you've heard of the Big Bang Theory. Have you heard of the Big Crunch Theory? This is a theory uh, that is seriously supported by some. That at the end of time, at the end of this universe, there will be a massive shift in the gravitational full pull that will pull the entire universe, stars and everything, screaming back into a tiny speck of matter. And that will be the end of the universe. Do you remember the, the lyrics that I read early on? It's expanding ever outward, but one day it will pause and start to go the other way, collapsing ever inward. We won't be here. It won't be heard. Our best and brightest figure that it'll make even bigger bang. So that's, what they, that's what's called the big crunch theory. Now, But I, I kind of digress. I just kind of wanted to throw that in there. These theories and extrapolations of the of the theory of of uniformity cannot be proven. Scientific method cannot be applied to verify them. Now, if someone wants to believe in these theories, and that's, I think that's fine. Uh, But to me, I cannot call that science. So to believe in these theories requires, wait for it, faith. Whoa, wait, wait a minute. Faith, are are we talking about religion here? 
or I thought we were, I thought we were talking about science. When does science no longer science? When does science become a religion? I would, I would suggest that when untested, impossible to prove theories are stated as facts that require faith, there's that word again, that require faith to believe it is no longer science but religion. And there's a name for it. I didn't know this until I started preparing for the sermon. There's, there's, a, there's something called scientism. I don't know if you've heard of that. There's a definition for scientism. Thought or expression regarded as characteristics of scientists. Excessive belief in the power of scientific knowledge and techniques. I didn't know that, that scientism existed. But now we have a problem. If science is no longer science, if it is a religion that requires faith, there is a conflict with the God of our scriptures. Now we have a conflict between science and Christianity. And sadly, this religion has captured many, many hearts and minds. Church, Satan has taken something beautiful and exciting and meaningful. This discipline that we know as science. And he has applied and played on the pride and arrogance of man's sinful nature to invent this religion that is bent on replacing the true and rightful creator with belief in man's own ability to scientifically replace the truth of God revealed in creation with his own prideful intellect. And that we do have a problem with. We do have a conflict with scripture. And Unless you think I'm overstating that case, that the aim of this religion is to replace our God. Take a look at some of these quotes. There are, there are hundreds of these, but in the interest of time, I'll mention one or two. The first one, please, Mike. This is, oh, I'm sorry. That's not the one I wanted first, but we can, we can use this one. Sean Carroll is a theoretical physicist at California Institute of Technology. And he was asked about what happened before the Big Bang. What was, what was there before the Big Bang? And he said, it's possible that the universe in the Big Bang was teeny-weeny or infinitely large. Because there's no way to look back in time at the stuff we can't even see today. He's admitting that it's a theory that requires faith. What's the next one, the next quote that we have? Okay. Stephen Hawking, the late Stephen Hawking, a theoretical physicist and cosmologist, on a National Geographic TV show in 2018 said, also asked the same question, what, but what was before the Big Bang? He said, since events before the Big Bang have no observational consequences, one may as well cut them out of the theory and say that time began at the Big Bang. He's totally avoiding the question. He has no answer for what was before the Big Bang. Let's go to another one. Um, Stephen Hawking again said, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. And then I think there's one more. <clears throat> and this is, points exactly to my point that this religion is out to replace, to eliminate God 
by saying one can't prove that God doesn't exist. He admits that he cannot prove God does not exist, but science makes God unnecessary. Friends, the aim of this religion is to eliminate God from our lives. Church, there is no conflict or incongruence between true science and the scriptures. And there has never been an experiment or even one shovel full of dirt turned in an archaeological dig that refutes scripture. Yet, even as more and more archaeological finds validate Christianity and the scriptures, still many, many scientists refuse to acknowledge God. There was a study done a few years ago. A scientist went to Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa. They climbed to 19,000 feet, which is really, really hard to do and high. And they camped there for a period of time. They were taking core samples of ice drilling down. And they were pulling out these core samples. Some of them as deep as 700 feet. And their uh, scientific pursuit was to try and find some reasons for climate change causation or other, other environmental factors. And they, through their study of these core samples, they determined one of these core samples uh, revealed that there was a period of severe drought in Africa around 36 to 3,700 years ago. And it was pointed out to the team that these dates correspond quite well with the biblical account of the drought of Egypt. The drought that you may recall from the story of Joseph. Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat. That Joseph. Uh, when he had risen to the spot of second in command in all of Egypt. And had foretold uh, a coming time of seven years of prosper. And then seven years of famine and drought. And he stored up the grain. And it wound up being salvation for his family. The, the Jewish nation. And there's this wonderful biblical account. Well, I came across an article uh, talking about this experiment. And the article reads like this. And I want you to think about this. Even in the face of something uh, like this, uh, they still refuse to acknowledge God. But listen, scholars claim, biblical scholars claim that this period of drought occurred around 36 to 3,700 years ago. This perfectly aligns with the data that Thompson, that was the scientist, that Thompson's team found in the ice cores of Kilimanjaro. The scientific evidence alongside biblical accounts and other ancient Egyptian records point toward a massive drought. One so severe that it put the authority of the pharaohs at risk. This odd mix of biblical storytelling and modern science worked together to support the tale of Joseph and the drought. But they couldn't help themselves, church. They had to add this. Although the Old Testament is rarely taken as literal history, the Kilimanjaro ice cores show that it's not a complete work of fiction. Verifiable facts also somehow made it into the stories. Even when their own scientific pursuits reveal God's plan, they refuse to acknowledge God. So make no mistake, church, the religion of scientism is real. But it is not real science. And the real problem, and there is a real problem between Christianity and scientism. But make no mistake, there is no conflict between real science and Christianity. And let's talk about real scientists. Let's talk about real Christian scientists. 
If you've been following along, if you have the book, uh, McLaughlin's book, she goes out of her way to, point, to discuss a lot of Christian scientists. In fact, a lot of science was born out of Christian efforts to know their God better. The foundational work that eventually led to that scientific method that we talked about was performed by Franciscan friars in the 12 and 1300s. She goes on to talk about Robert Boyle. If you're a physicist, you know Boyle's Law. He was a devout Christian. In fact, he almost became a pastor, but believed that he could serve his God better as a scientist. Think about that. Albert Einstein kept pictures of three notable scientists on the wall of his office. One of them was Sir Isaac Newton, maybe the world's most famous scientist. Now, when you look at his faith, Newton you probably couldn't call him a a true believer in Jesus. He had, he struggled with uh, acknowledging the full deity of Jesus, but he acknowledged God, a creator and a designer of our world. In fact, Sir Isaac Newton wrote more about theology than he did about science. Michael Faraday, whose work on electromagnetism was another picture that Einstein had in his office. And if you're a physicist, you, you, you've probably heard of the Faraday constant the Faraday effect, the Faraday cage, and Faraday waves. He was a passionate Christian. I went to college to be an engineer, and after eight hours of physics, I decided not to be an engineer. (laughs) But I remember those names. I can't tell you what they mean, but I remember those names. James Clerk Maxwell, the great physicist, was an elder in the Presbyterian Church in the Church of Scotland. Charles Darwin actually grew up in a faithful environment. His closest friend and ally was a man named Asa Gray, a Harvard professor. Asa Gray was a devout Christian and tried over and over again to get Charles Darwin to return to his faith. And McLaughlin, she lives in Boston. You guys were just in Boston. She lives very close to MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, one of the world's greatest scientific research institutions. And in her book, she cites more than a dozen of Jesus-following, believing professors at MIT. Church, we need to not be afraid of engaging in scientific debate. I mentioned earlier that often when scientific debates are put forward, Christians often retreat. We need to not not do that. Um, There are way too many examples to cover them all today of how science aligns with Scripture, but I I will touch on a few. Consider the world's hydrologic cycle. The realization that the world's water system is basically a closed loop system. I don't know if you knew that or not. That the total amount of water in the world remains relatively constant. The cycle that includes precipitation, you know, rain and snow, condensation, evaporation that runs off into and feeds runoff that feeds our rivers and our lakes and our streams, our oceans and underground reservoirs. These were first referenced in the scientific world about 350 BC, about the time of Aristotle. However, the oldest book of the Bible, Job chapter 36, verses 27 and 28 says, for he draws up the drops of water, evaporation. They distill rain from the midst. The rain comes down, which the clouds pour down and they drip upon man abundantly. 
Isaiah in chapter 55 says, for as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth. In other words, they do their job of providing water to the earth, these raindrops, and then they return to the heavens. The scriptures called out the world's hydrologic cycle before scientists invented it or came up with it. Consider the law, the second law of thermodynamics, which states that everything in the world left to itself will break down. That has become less physically complex. This is known as entropy. This action is known as entropy or the state of increasing disorder, which is kind of a weird way to think about it, that things left to themselves will become more and more disorderly. That's entropy. And you can see it everywhere. Just leave a raw wooden bench out in the sun and rain for a month or two and see if it is as physically intact. But in Hebrews 1, verses 10 and 11, we're told, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. That's the second law of thermodynamics. In 1850, when Rudolf Clausius and William Thompson Kelvin invented the second law of therm- or came up with it, they thought they discovered an important new law of physics. They should have just read Hebrews. Those same two scientists also discovered the first law of thermodynamics that states that neither matter nor energy can be created or destroyed. Genesis 2.1 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And the original Hebrew word there for finished is the past definite tense, indicating an action completed in the past, never to occur again. Precisely what the first law of thermodynamics says. There is no more creation going on today, folks. And again, this is perfect alignment between science and scripture. Then there is the science of isostasy, which is the discovery that an equilibrium exists between the parts of the earth's between parts of the earth's crust, keeping the earth in perfect balance. And that the earth's crust can actually shift to account for imbalances that might occur. Leonardo da Vinci actually first wrote about this idea in the scientific literature. But Isaiah, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, wrote, Behold the Lord God who measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, marked off the heavens with the span, and listen to this church, calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills with a pair of scales. It's it's perfect example of science, the discovery of the isostasy science, keeping the earth in perfect balance as it spins on its axis, was written about 700 years before Jesus was born. But to me, I, I, was, I was talking to my dad. Uh, I was talking to him yesterday. And my dad is 92. He is, a, he is a Bible scholar. He's always calling me with new things. He is fascinated by this topic. And uh, he's always sending me new things that he ri- might read in science journals or whatever that verifies scripture. So I called him and I said, Dad, what's the, 
to you, what's the greatest revelation of God's handiwork in our, in our uh, existence today? He, he did not hesitate. He said, this is a human body. Now, and I'm not even going to go to the amazing things we see in science in the animal world. Amazing things that cannot be described outside the hand of, a, of an intelligent designer, a creator who placed them there. But when you look at the human body, oh my goodness, it goes on forever, the things you can learn. And so in the interest of time, I'm only going to uh, address a couple of things. Uh, but it, it just, it's a fascinating subject. I, I would encourage you to look at it. Um, you've probably heard Jesus referred to as the light. Uh, the light of the world. It occurs a lot in scripture, but... Specifically, the light that brings life. John 1, 4 says, in him was the light and the life. Excuse me. In him was life and the life was the light of men. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And John 1, 9 says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Did you know that several years ago, about, uh, I'm going to say seven years ago or so, In studying in vitro fertilization, scientists discovered that at the moment of conception, when sperm meets eggs, at that exact moment when life begins, that union emits a small spark of light. This was seen in a Petri dish in an in vitro fertilization situation. For the first time, scientists have proven that when a human egg is fertilized, it releases what are called zinc Sparks. Upon fertilization, calcium increases and zinc is released rapidly. And when this happens, the zinc joins itself to small light emitting molecule probes. Now, I don't know if there's significance, spiritual significance to this scientific discovery. But in view of those passages we just read about the light of life being in men, it, it sure is interesting to me. But in my mind, Probably the crown jewel of scientific discovery is the discovery of an understanding of DNA and the procreation process of the human species. Um, So I'm going to ask Mike to put up the next slide. So yes, yes, I have shamelessly used this opportunity to show you my twin grandbabies that were born on July 18th. And talk about their creation. Every, each and every cell in your body and in these two little bodies has this incredible genetic roadmap. And as, as these babies were formed in my daughter's womb and those cells split over and over and over again, this roadmap directed those cells for their job. This roadmap told some cells, you're going, to be, you're going to become a heart and pump life, life-giving blood. You're going to become lungs and you're going to draw life-giving, life-sustaining air. Uh, you're going to become some kidneys. You're going to become some bones. And, and you get the idea. And every cell that is replicated and splitting in this process contains this DNA roadmap. 
Bill Gates actually said DNA is like a computer program, but far, far more advanced than any software we have created. And I think he understated the case. Did you know that each one of your cells that has that strand of DNA, this DNA is coiled up into tiny little coils. But if it was stretched out, it's approximately two meters long, approximately five to six feet long. And the number of, when you multiply that by the number of cells in a person, and for this study, they took a 30-year-old person who weighed about 70 kilograms and estimated that the number of cells in that average person's body were 10 to the 14th power. 10 with 14 more zeros behind it. That's how many cells there are. When you multiply that by six feet of DNA, if you laid the DNA in your body today, end to end, it would stretch to Pluto and back 12 times. Do you think that happened by chance? You think that was a random event that just came to be? David in chapter 139 of the book of Psalms said, for you were formed in my, in, you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows and that my soul knows very well. A couple of verses later, he even hints at God's knowledge of the information that makes us before we're even formed. In verse 16, he writes, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they were all written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. Church, it boggles my mind to think that anyone could believe this could happen without intelligent design, without a creator, through a totally random process. I've, I've heard it said that the likelihood of the human body resulting from a random undesigned process would be more unlikely than an explosion in a junkyard would result in a fully functional Boeing 737. Think about that. I would submit that it takes way more faith to believe in scientism than Christianity. What is observable in nature through casual observation and through scientific methods demands the acknowledgement of intelligent design, a creator. But friends, that's exactly what many are trying to avoid. Because if you acknowledge a creator, if you acknowledge God's design in the construct and the creation and the ongoing processes of science in our world, you have to deal with your sin. And that's where the rub comes. Now, I spoke a little bit about this. I've, I've, well, I've talked all morning about this conflict or alleged contract, conflict between science and scripture. And I mentioned very briefly the theory of evolution. And I'd be remiss if I did not point out that Christians are divided on this topic. Um, there are those that read the first chapter of Genesis literally and that believe God created the world in six literal days, six 24-hour periods. I, I, I myself am in that camp. I read that scripture literally. Now that makes me uh, what is called a young earth believer. Now, there are, there are equally dedicated, God-fearing, God-loving, Jesus-following Christians. 
that believe God used evolution in his creative process. That the word day in Genesis could be interpreted as maybe in that age, a, a longer period of time. And I'm, I'm not going to try and settle this debate today. Although in my flesh, I was tempted to try. <laughs> I personally believe that the literal reading uh, that makes me a young earth proponent, and I, and I believe that there are great arguments for this position, but I have brothers and sisters in the faith who believe God used evolution in his creative process and therefore espoused the old earth view. And this gets really hard for some people. Included in, in the older earth view uh, are some theologians. One I admire greatly, Wayne Grudem, leans more towards uh, the idea that God used evolution in his, pro- in his creative process in the, an old earth view. And even though I disagree with Grudem on this topic, I take my approach, my consideration of this discussion from him. And I, church, I think this is really important for us to hear. Grudem states, there are difficulties with both old earth and young earth viewpoints. Difficulties, listen to this, that the proponents of each often seem unable to see in their own positions. Doesn't that describe the human condition every time we get in an argument? Uh, I, can, I, can't see the, I can't see the fault of my argument. Of course you should believe what I believe and, and, and take what I believe. He goes on to say that progress will certainly be made if old earth and young earth scientists who are Christians will be more willing to talk to each other without hostility or highly emotional accusations on the one hand and without spirit a spirit of condescension or academic pride on the other. In other words, church, as we've often said here at Genesis Church, let's go get a cup of coffee together. Let's discuss our differences. We can even defend them vehemently. But then let's lock arms and go do mission work together. On this topic, I'm perfectly willing to accept and agree that we're talking about Almighty God here. If he chose to use uh, evolution... Who am I to re- say God was restricted and, and could not do that? So I, you know, I, I don't see that as something that we should part company on. That's not the way I read the scriptures, but I, I, I just don't. But I cannot say that God could not use evolution in his creative process. And by the way, coming back to the, the lyrics of the Big Bang Theory, there is a lot in the actual, in the actual Big Bang Theory that lines up with the, with a biblical creation story. The belief that the universe came into being in an instant, as those lyrics pointed out, is very consistent. God spoke. And from the breath of his words, the stars were flung into space. They're still flinging, church. <laughs> There's, our universe is expanding. The part about the reverse Big Bang Theory, the Big Crunch Theory, I'm, I'm personally not buying that one. But that leads me to my final points for today's message. First, and you can put up the next slide, thank you. There is no conflict between true science and Christianity. And to answer today's question, no, science has not disproved our faith, but rather has validated it over and over again. And my first application point is do your own homework. Dig into these scriptures where scriptures speak into science and they reveal that some of them, you know, you kind of, the Bible does not talk in technical scientific language. 
the authors of the scripture and God knew that this would be necessary to be a plain man's reading of the text. Do your own homework. Explore scientific theories against scripture. Number two, embrace science as a gift from God that reveals his infinite glory and power. The pursuit to know God more through a study of his magnificent creation, church, pursuing science to know God more, this is an act of worship. The more we see his glory, his majesty, his power revealed in our scientific pursuits, the more we realize the folly of our own arrogance the more we are confronted with our own sin and the more we find ourselves in need of a savior. That savior is Jesus. And finally, the third point I'll make, use science to point people to Jesus. If you've heard nothing else that I've said today, I would love for you to to hear this well. Do not shy away from science or scientific conversations or debate. Keep in mind the difference between science and scientism. And if you're talking to a person who is clearly relying on faith to defend their scientific point, lovingly point out to them how they actually are a person of faith. And would they consider directing that faith to a, in a different, in a better direction towards an almighty God who hung the moon and the stars? And who loves him deeply and provided a savior in his son, Jesus. Church, as I prepared for today's sermon. I really got convicted that too often these debates. uh, in In these kind of conversations. My flesh rises up. And I kind of take, okay, let's go. Let's get the dukes up and. I kind of take that posture of this is going to be a fight and I'm going to win this fight. I'm going to win this debate, et cetera. And, and God really convicted me of that. And he used Stephen Hawking to do that. I don't know if you guys know much about Stephen Hawking. Or if you've ever seen a photograph of Stephen Hawking. But I read a little bit about him in preparation for today. And Stephen Hawking was, had some significant physical deformities and health challenges. And if you've ever seen a picture of him, uh, it, it's, it's difficult. But I looked at a picture of him. And I know that this man's theories and beliefs and teachings have probably led Thousands, millions, I don't know, of people astray and away from the gospel. But I looked at his face in these pictures. And I saw a man who went to his grave needing Jesus. So when you find yourself in these conversations. Think about that. The person that you are looking at eye to eye. Or maybe through a computer screen. We do a lot of our debates on Facebook and other places. That person needs Jesus. And how you conduct yourself in that conversation may or may not be a catalyst 
on how they view our Savior. And I want to tell you that we should not retreat when scientific debates are put forward. That we should address them. But we, and we can address them with confidence, with boldness, boldness in our faith, but also with humility. Let your argument, your debate with these people, show them Jesus. Let them see how you conduct yourselves in these conversations. Shows them to Jesus. In a minute, uh, well, I'll ask the band to come forward now as we prepare to close. And we're going to sing. We're going to sing about God, our creator. We're going to worship him. We're going to praise him. And at the close of our service, if you have thoughts, questions about this journey uh, called Christianity, or want to know more about Jesus, or you have prayer requests, maybe life is really hard on you right now and you would love to have the prayers of believing people lift you up before the throne of our God. We'll have people right over here behind this screen. Please, please avail yourself of them. Again, I, uh, I hope we've answered that question. Hasn't science disproved Christianity? I hope we've answered that with a resounding no. I hope we've given you the confidence to engage in these conversations. And I pray that in, in so doing that you would reflect our Savior. Would you please pray with me? Lord God, we are so in awe of everything about you today, Lord, as we've looked at your creative work, the amazing design of our world. We praise you. We cannot do anything but acknowledge your greatness. Lord, we fall on our face. We praise you, God. We thank you. We pray for those whose hearts have been captured by a a false religion. Father, I pray that each and every person here today or listening or watching online would be emboldened, that they would see the beauty of your creation and your design and your work in the scriptures and not be afraid to engage in these conversations, Lord. And I pray that that be done in a way that honors you, gives you glory and you alone. God, we... uh, We commit this time to you. I pray that we leave here today different than when we walked in. And that that be only by the mighty word and your spirit working in us today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.